The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. An alternative view is that it's wishful thinking. We have been trained in diabetes to treat to glucose targets, and if that were to not be the way to treat these patients, then what is our contribution? Given permission, so to speak, to actually cut back at a particular point, I think, is very nice. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Today's podcast features an article titled Hemoglobin A1C Targets for Glycemic Control with Pharmacologic Therapy for Non-Pregnant Adults with Type 2 Diabetes Mellitus, a guidance statement update from the American College of Physicians. This article appeared in the Annals of Internal Medicine and was published on March 6, 2018. To discuss this article, today's guest is Dr. Victor Montori, who's Professor of Medicine at Mayo Clinic. He's an endocrinologist and a noted researcher and the principal investigator of the Knowledge and Evaluation Research Unit at the Mayo Clinic. He's also the author of the book, Why We Revolt, a discussion of the patient revolution in healthcare. I think the thing we should do first is give an overview of the article, and then we'll try to break down where there's some controversy about this. And there's a quote early in the article that states, the ideal target would optimally balance benefits and harms. And they're referring to where should we target the hemoglobin A1C. And I know you've written about this, and I've read your concerns in the first half of your wonderful book, but why don't you comment on this concept of an ideal hemoglobin A1C target? Yeah, so I think the on face value, the notion that you have to balance the risks and benefits makes good sense. But there are a couple of elements that we need to keep in mind. The first one is the risks and benefits to whom? Um, in general, when people draft recommendations uh, or guidance or guidelines, they tend to imagine a group of patients and what will be the right approach for that particular population. Uh, and in today's day and age, uh, where we have a lot of investments in population health and we're trying to uh, be efficient uh, with the use of healthcare resources, having a, a general guidance for a population seems to make sense. But the balance of risk and benefits in a condition such as diabetes, and we're here talking about exclusively about type 2 diabetes, um, is actually, I think, quite dependent on the context and situation of each patient, making the ideal A1C, you know, a point value of it or a a narrowly defined range, uh, very hard to use to determine the quality of care, for instance, of a specific patient. The second thing about this balance of risk and benefit is that directly approaching diabetes as a hyperglycemic condition and treating hyperglycemia relates to two things. One, avoiding hypoglycemia, which is direct harm from our therapy with no benefit. And the other one is mitigating hyperglycemia. 
So we're interested in capturing those two ends, and it makes little sense to look in the short term at a number, A1C, that represents the average. So in other words, that hides the two ends that we are actually supposed to be focused on. And of course, historically, we chose A1C because it relates to long-term complications. And while it does observationally, it has not proven very responsive as a surrogate uh, for treatments of diabetes, uh, predicting how much treatments of diabetes will reduce diabetes-related complications. So A1C is really challenging as an end-all and be-all of guidance for how to treat diabetes. So this particular paper is not considered a guideline, but rather guidance. And so the evidence level necessary for guidance statements is not quite the same as for guidelines, even though this does come from the guidelines committee at the American College of Physicians. Their first statement refers to personalizing goals for glycemic control in type 2 diabetes, where you have a discussion of benefits and harms of pharmacotherapy what the patient's preferences, what their general health and life expectancy is, the treatment burden, and the costs of care. So what do you think of that guidance statement, and why might that guidance statement bother some diabetes organizations? Well, I think um, I'm a little hesitant to buy into the differences between guidance and guideline statements and so forth, because while the people drafting them might be mindful of those differences, the people reading them might not. And I think that some of the negative response that has come particularly from my community, the community of endocrinologists, um, has been in not noticing that difference uh, and wondering why you're guidance differs from their guidelines. So that would be one thing. The second thing is that the notion of individualizing care and targets uh, in relation to patients' biological, personal, and social context makes absolute sense. And to that extent, this guidance is superior to uh, any of the guidelines that come from endocrinologists that if they mention the notion of individualization, they immediately contradict their invitation to individualize by setting narrow or uh, making strong recommendations about uh, strict uh, glycemic control for everyone, except for a fringe population that they uh, describe perhaps as having frailty, limited life expectancy, or other complications. But the truth of the matter is those special cases are examples where individualization is particularly hard, um, not examples of where individualization must take place while the other groups can be treated in a one-size-fits-all approach. So I think to that extent the ACP guidance is uh, superior, um, but it's actually a very hard guidance to implement and to measure in terms of its uh, quality from a population perspective or an administrative data set perspective, which means that those that then link this to, say, quality improvement, um, pay for performance, or any other tool of industrial healthcare, uh, will have a hard time uh, determining whether this guidance is being followed. So that was guidance statement number one, is personalization. Guidance statement number two is, if you're going to target hemoglobin A1C, you should target it between 7% and 8% rather than below 7% that we see in most of the diabetes organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, that, that's fine. Uh, 
what, what that is saying, I think, to most uh, patients and clinicians is that, first of all, A1C varies uh, by 0.3. So if you get a 7.3, that could be a 7 or a 7.6. So very narrow ranges ignore sometimes uh, that the variation that is expected. The second thing is that uh, 7 is still far away from 70 or 60 or 50, which is where symptomatic hypoglycemia may come on. And eight uh, is getting up there with the uh, renal threshold for uh, glycosuria uh, and the potential symptoms of symptomatic hyperglycemia. So that's basically saying that you would like your A1C parked somewhere where you're away from lows and um, less likely to have symptomatic hyperglycemia. Now, depending on how you're treating diabetes, an A1C between 7 and 8 may still be associated with significant lows, um, where the average is landing between 7 and 8, but it's achieved by very high blood sugars and very low, low blood sugars. And so the average might look good, but you may be mistreating patients. But it's a reasonable range. Um, why do many of the guidelines from endocrinology associations and diabetes groups uh, target seven rather than eight. And some of them have come out and said that this is a bad guidance statement. Yeah, um, I think we misread the evidence. Um, and I don't know if the misreading, so the cynics will say that we misread the evidence because it gives value to our jobs. Um, and also it gives value to our partners. Uh, many endocrinologic societies depend uh, from funding from pharmaceutical companies whose uh, main product lines in diabetes are glucose-lowering drugs. So that's the cynic view, and, and that may be true. An alternative view is that it's wishful thinking. Uh, we have been trained in diabetes to treat to glucose targets, and if that were to not be the way to treat these patients, then what is our contribution to their care? So that's a pretty threatening statement, and we've seen it before in endocrinology when hormone replacement therapy was challenged, and the first response from organized endocrinology was, oh, don't stop your hormones, talk to your doctor, it's all going to be okay. Or when we learned that Avandia or rosiglitazone could cause uh, myocardial infarctions increasing that risk by about 40%. Don't stop the drug, talk to your doctor. So we tend to respond in that way, I think, to anything that could feel um, as like a threat to what we have up to that point held here. In a paper that we published in September 2016 in Circulation Outcomes and Quality, we noticed that we've been doing this for a while. So when we went back to the publications of the UKPDS trial in 98, and then in 2006 to 2015 with the publication of Advanced Accord VABT and all the meta-analysis and follow-ups of those trials, we've noticed that the guideline panels, so in other words, experts, have been saying that we know for sure that tight glycemic control reduces the risk of microvascular complications. But in that analysis, we noticed that that has never really been true for dialysis, renal death, blindness, or clinical neuropathy. So that seemed to be based on wishful thinking and extrapolation from type 1 diabetes. And then most guidance uh, up to a court thought the same thing about microvascular complications, but after a court, they became quite uh, concerned that perhaps glycemic control will be negative for cardiovascular health. But our analysis shows that there are only three consistent outcomes from tight glycemic control. One is weight gain, the other one is hypoglycemia, and the third one is the reduction in the risk of non-fatal MI by about 15%. 
So instead of the usual narrative that tight glycemic control is good for microvascular complication and we're not sure for macro, turns out we're not sure for micro and we're sure for at least one macrovascular complication, which is non-fatal MI. So the fact that we are not looking at the evidence for what it shows us, despite 40,000 randomized trial patients, is I think at the root of why we may be disagreeing this time. Um, uh, I've become a real devotee of the concept of confirmation bias. You overestimate the evidence that supports your beliefs and you underestimate the evidence that it runs counter to your beliefs. I believe that what you just said in uh, the last five minutes are examples of how the endocrinologists are using confirmation bias. The other thing, although it's not part of this guideline, one of the things that seems to be very important when I read the rest of the literature is that glycemic control is not as important as controlling the other risk factors for macrovascular disease. Yeah, I mean, a 15% reduction in non-fatal MI with no change in fatal MI is actually really interesting. How can that happen, right? Uh, that's what the evidence would suggest here. But a 15% reduction is of the same magnitude as adding PCSK9 inhibitors to, to hydrostatin. So yeah. that is that magnitude. And of course, it is small for glycemic control as it is also for PCSK9 inhibitors. <laughs> um, the other thought I think that goes with the confirmation bias story that you mentioned is I happen to have been as a resident at the Barcelona basketball stadium where the results of the UKPDS trial were first reported. Uh, Dr. Turner, who was the lead investigator, was at the center of stage. And the first slide he used is a slide of himself as a young man. Uh, we, that's when the trial started. The trial, uh, for your listeners, continued until they found the p-value. And that was way beyond the initial estimated uh, length of that trial. That trial was supposed to be a five-year trial, which started in 1977. Remember, it reported its results in 1998. And when he reported the results and the first slide came out, showing that the separation in the curves between patients treated with intensive glycemic control, which is an A1C of around 7.5 or so, and diet um, control to limit symptomatic hyperglycemia, which was a control group, that that separation, which is in a composite endpoint called all diabetes-related complications, which included 14 components in that composite endpoint, that separation led to two things in the audience. One was a, an applause, uh, which is kind of weird. It's not a show. It's a clinical trial results report, right? But the people applauded. Then a chunk of people left the stadium and went to the payphones. This is before cell phones were that popular. I went to the payphones and I was kind of followed them to see what they were doing. And they were buying stock for metformin. And then um, I think it was the Keta Pharmaceuticals at the time. And then the guy next to me was the endocrinologist that ended up convincing me to go into endocrinology. And uh, he was with me to present a poster there at that conference. And he was sitting next to me and when the slide came out, he elbowed me and said, this is the result we've been waiting for. And so I think that is probably the best statement of confirmation bias that, that you can get. What a wonderful story. Well, let's move on. The um, third guidance statement is that we should consider de-intensifying pharmacological therapy once the hemoglobin A1C goes below 6.5. Yeah, this is unique, right? Most guidelines or guidance statements do not provide any support to the notion of de-intensification or de-prescribing. So this is very enlightened, I think, uh, particularly in light of the fact that many of our patients, 75% in one study that we are hoping to publish soon, 
uh, report some degree of treatment burden uh, across a range of things from just waiting too much time for care, uh, from struggling to figure out how to pay for medications and get approvals from insurance uh, to deal with diet and exercise and so forth. So having an opportunity sanctioned by experts, um, uh, so, so given permission, so to speak, to actually cut back at a particular point, I think is uh, is very nice. Um, again, because this guidance focused on A1C, their recommendation to lighten the load is linked to an A1C target. But I would think that the general guidance should be that at all points in time, clinicians taking care of patients with diabetes and multiple chronic conditions, which is now the most common form of diabetes, is the diabetes with comorbidities, uh, that they should be paying close attention to the point at which the patients become overwhelmed. Because beyond that point, the patients are going to start cutting back on what they actually implement. And instead of just labeling them as non-compliant, we should be working with them to make sure that we do not exceed their capacity to implement the treatment program and leave capacity um, sort of free and open so that they will have the time, energy, and attention to pursue their life and their loves. So I'm going to tell an anecdote. I was just at the Society of General Internal Medicine meetings, and a colleague told me a story about a patient who was prescribed 12 medications. Um, he never got his diabetes under control, never had his hypertension under control, and then one day it came out when his wife was in the room that he decided that he should not take more than five pills, but he sort of took them at random, <laughs> which pills he was going to take. So the whole idea of trying to figure out what the patient can tolerate, both financially and emotionally, in terms of how many pills they can take, should have some impact on how we treat them and how we prioritize their four different comorbid diseases. I think that's great. As you may know, we've been working for the last 15 years on uh, shared decision-making, and the current way of thinking about its uh, objective is to arrive at a treatment program that makes sense uh, to the patient intellectually, so they can understand why they're doing, emotionally, so that it will feel like the right thing to do, and practically, so that it can actually work within the complications of their life. And we need to achieve those three sense-making targets to know that we've done good share of decision making. Uh, a very interesting fourth guidance statement. I've not seen one like this before. Um, we should treat patients with type 2 diabetes to minimize symptoms related to hyperglycemia and avoid targeting a hemoglobin A1C in patients with a life expectancy less than 10 years, either due to advanced age, residence in a nursing home, or chronic conditions such as dementia, cancer that's not treatable, end-stage kidney disease, or severe COPD, because the harms outweigh the benefits in that particular population. Um, I found that a very enlightening statement. Uh, how do you interpret that? Um, like you, uh, with two caveats. One is that Again, it's hard to see what benefits we're talking about. So when they say that the harms outweigh the benefits, I would have added the words potential. So because the harms outweigh the promised or potential benefits in this population or in any other population, I, I, we have a hard time uh, beyond symptomatic hyperglycemia to identify the benefits to lowering A1C with any intervention and achieving benefits. So that would be one part. And the second one is that I think there's a, a sense of faith here in the guideline group that glycemic control could have benefit in people with more than 10 years of life expectancy who live independently and that live uh, free of significant or severe chronic comorbidities. And um, I'm not sure. I think that's for sure that we're going to cause probably more harm than good in that population. 
But I would, again, I think by limiting to that population, it almost suggests that we don't have to follow the guidance one, which is the idea of personalizing, which I think is a much, uh, I, I would stick with guidance one, personalize, and then when you find somebody whose comorbidities for them make it incredibly unlikely they'll benefit and very likely will cause harm, then you need to back off. And the, I think what guidance for is provides an, a list of people at the extreme where really there's almost no reason to pursue glycemic control beyond symptomatic relief. Now, in our discussion, you've mentioned performance measures several times, and I, I do have a skeptical viewpoint of performance measures in general and whether they actually do good when they're targeted for paper performance. I think performance measures are a nice way for you to assess your own practice and make your own personal adjustments. But we do live in an age where insurance companies, including Medicare, use performance measures. So this committee suggests that there should not be a performance measure of a hemoglobin A1C at any number that's less than 8% in any patients, but you should have as an exclusion in the denominator the patients who were in that fourth guidance statement. Uh, what do you feel about performance measures of diabetes control? Well, I feel like you about performance measures in general. I think that performance measures for any purpose, I think, are expressions of power. Uh, somebody who knows better than the frontline clinicians and their patients is telling them how they should operate and what should be considered good practice. And it has an incredibly disappointing effect on clinicians' practice. One of my colleagues has looked at A1C measurement in patients with type 2 diabetes, and every time somebody is around the threshold for either payment or recognition, um, that we see the clinicians ordering more A1Cs almost to make sure that by chance they'll get under that number and pass the test, so to speak. And a lot of attention is focused on those people around the thresholds, and people way above or way below are completely ignored because intervening on them is not going to uh, materially affect either uh, payment or reputation. Uh, I think it uh, corrupts uh, professionalism, it makes us ace the test rather than uh, care, and it's a manifestation of industrial health care, not of careful and kind care. So you can see I don't feel very strongly about these performance <laughs> measures. Um, I think the guidance is particularly wise in putting some boundaries over what performance measures should be doing in terms of pushing, for instance, A1C less than 8 on anyone, and leaving clinicians perhaps enough room from 7 to 8 or from 4 to 8 if you want. Um, to identify an A1C target that might work for a particular patient. But yet again, I'm very skeptical of A1C targets, and I'm wondering how much opportunity we're losing here by focusing only on A1C when diabetes and these comorbidities is such a complicated biological and social situation for patients that by focusing on glycemia, I wonder if we're missing the underlying troubles that um, have hyperglycemia as its symptom, not as the core pathophysiologic abnormality. Um, the analogy I, I draw with trainees sometimes is I ask them to reflect. If we knew nothing about infections uh, and we had some people presenting with fever, would we know, would we probably have now you know, 12 different drug classes that lower fever and still have the kind of outcomes that we see in untreated infection. 
And I wonder if to some extent, I don't think a full extent, but to some extent we're making the same mistake with hyperglycemia in type 2 diabetes, in which hyperglycemia may just be a, a marker of allostatic load or some homeostatic disruption in which normalizing glycemia gives the impression that we're doing something for patients. But again, 40,000 patients in multiple randomized trials later, we can't really tell for sure that patients are better off, either in terms of living longer or feeling better. So I think we've gone through the guideline very well, and I think the final thing we should do is to have you summarize what the takeaways are from this guidance statement, um, what you like about it, and what you would improve on it. As opposed to <laughs> the, my organized uh, endocrinology colleagues, I think this is brilliant. Uh, I think it's a step forward. I think it begins to recognize the fact that most patients with diabetes live complicated lives, have complicated uh, comorbidities, and that the task of caring for them carefully has to be smarter than simply getting a number to a particular range. I think that the boundaries that they've placed around the clinician and the patient to protect them from overly narrow targets, overly tight targets, and um, its associated performance metrics is wise, and their invitation to de-intensify when we've gone too far, or when the patient's context has changed so much that there's simply no chance for them to benefit, I think is also quite wise. Um, I think we need to go further. I think this doesn't go far enough. And we need to start looking at extrapolating these recommendations to the research enterprise as well and begin to look at clinical trials, even from early phases and new science, to figure out how might we improve the lives and the quality of life and duration of life um, and ability of patients with diabetes beyond glycemic control. One concern, and this has affected everyone that has looked at hypoglycemia, is that hypoglycemia avoidance, uh, which I think is a, uh, you know, very relevant in this particular guidance as a major harm of many of our antihyperglycemic regimens, as a major harm of aiming low. Hypoglycemia avoidance requires increasingly the use of more expensive or more invasive uh, medications in terms of injectable drugs and drugs that out-of-pocket costs are, you know, somewhere between 20 and 80 times more than, say, metformin or sulfonylureas. So there's a potential downside to emphasis on avoiding hypoglycemia that could have a negative impact on the burden of treatment of patients, particularly in the financial side. So as it always happens, every time you start that trying to be more patient-centered and try to stay away from industrial forms of healthcare, something about our greed-based systems, uh, you know, bites you back. And I think in order to take care of patients with diabetes or any chronic condition, we can't uh, tolerate the kinds of prices that are put on medicines that are pricing people out of the care that they need. So some of these patients that need to avoid hypoglycemia need medicines that they probably can't afford. And so I think that we need to address. And um, for the listeners, we will address that in a subsequent podcast on choosing proper drugs. Um, I'd like to remind everybody that all of this conversation has been about type 2 diabetes. We did not discuss type 1 diabetes. We did not discuss pancreatic diabetes. Um, type 2 diabetes is a very complex disease, and there's probably more than one type of it. Love to thank Dr. Montori for just an excellent discussion and uh, making some points about diabetes that I think are worthy of us all considering very strongly. Uh, he is an expert in this topic, has written widely on this topic, and we're so pleased that you were able to join us, Victor, on this podcast. Thank you very much. 
My pleasure. Time for Bob's Pearls. This very interesting discussion has really informed how I think about the management of type 2 diabetes. I've broken it down to three goals. Uh, the first being avoid symptomatic hyperglycemia and avoid hypoglycemia. The second goal is to discuss prioritization with the patient. What are we trying to accomplish and what is reasonable for this patient given the comorbidities that they have. And the third is to recognize that hemoglobin A1c remains a controversy as to how we should use it. It was very clear that both Dr. Montori and I felt strongly against using hemoglobin A1c as a performance measure because of the need to individualize patient care. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and thank you for listening. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.